Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'd like to begin this podcast by honoring the traditional custodians of the land that this podcast is being recorded on, the Kitsch, Shumash, and Tongva people, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Hey, this is Ben Lee. Welcome to the second episode of On the Future of Being a Musician. Thank you guys for all the incredible feedback on the first episode in the interview with Tom Gray. Yeah, it was really moving. It was something, this project is something I've really put together just for our community, community of musicians and people that care about the music industry. And it was really heartening just to see a lot of musicians sharing it and weighing in on the conversation and saying how inspired they felt just to hear this conversation being had publicly. So yeah, guys, keep sharing it amongst yourselves. This isn't something that's being designed to make a lot of money or anything, but hopefully the more people we have participating in this conversation, the more dynamic the conversation will be and the better solutions we're going to find to the current problems that we're facing. Today's guest is someone that my friend Elise Tyler recommended that I speak to when I was brainstorming with her about the podcast. It's Joey Laneve De Francesco. He is one of the founders of Umore, the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, who you may have heard of. They popped up during 2020 um, when the pandemic was just kicking off, focused on pandemic assistance for musicians then took a lot of actions about trying to get a cent per stream, uh, a lot of actions around Spotify, and have now worked on, you know, a lot of really important things currently. There's a lot of attention on South by Southwest and trying to get fair pay for musicians who participate in the festival. So I'm very grateful to Joey for participating and for sharing his wisdom, and I think you will get a lot out of this chat. So here we go. All right, Joey, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on. So I think, uh, you know, the general gist of why I'm doing this is just to basically support our community of musicians who I just noticed uh, have a lot of existential questions about what <laughs> the future could possibly look like for us with uh, no income and robots replacing us and whatnot. But uh, I know that it was during COVID when is it so? You're the founder of United Musicians and Allied Workers, right? Yeah, it was me and I mean a, a few other folks kind of got started. And you're right; it kind of it started right at the beginning of COVID. Yeah, so I guess I was just initially just curious about. Obviously, you're a musician, but what your background was, both from a musical and activism perspective, that led up to the formation of the union. Yeah, they've always been blended for me. The bands that I've been in, been a few projects, but a, a punk band called Downtown Boys that is explicitly 
political punk band, but that band started when me and the singer Victoria were working at a hotel in Providence, Rhode Island. And we were both involved in an effort to unionize that hotel. So actually before we were in the band together, uh, we were organizing our coworkers, trying to build this union at the hotel. And we discovered we had a you know, shared interest in a lot of the same music and started to write songs out of knowing each other through this unionization effort. So kind of from the beginning, a lot of that material and our outlook on this had that politics uh, base. And was that successful? Were you able to set up that union at the hotel? Yeah, it was a very long uh, battle. I was there for like four years. This is when I was like, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. Um, So the workers there did eventually want a contract. Um, I I had to to leave that job before we won the contract. But uh, yes, happy to say the workers did uh, eventually win, but it did take like a decade, which is uh, unfortunately the the sad state of a lot of unionization efforts in the United States because our labor laws are so, so shitty here. And did you come from a family history of involvement in unions or something? Because sometimes you see that gets passed through as a value system. Yeah, I mean, I think both my parents were union members, um, state employees union uh, in different ways. But yeah, I think like a lot of folks my age lived through giant recession um, and, uh, you know, the late 2000s where we saw economy fall off a cliff and a lot of the kind of economic fantasies that were promised to us fall off. We saw the Iraq war go on in the U.S. and we're protesting that. So it kind of got radicalized um, in, in that way, I think is probably the most important thing for the mindset. I think of like me and Victoria from a band all coming together. Besides being, you know, union positive, how would you describe your political outlook? Yeah. I mean, generally left labor focused left, not a huge fan of picking, you know, little subgenre labels for my, my politics, but generally believe in they need to build power and to build worker power and have kind of approach whatever job I'm doing or whatever task I have is sort of that being the, the root of redistributing the resources, taking resources, building more equitable world. Yeah. But non nihilistic, it seems like there's a real divide in particularly in the punk community between people that feel that it's possible to create positive change and people who feel that it's so fucked up that, you know, basically we are, you know what I mean? On the road to hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've run into this a lot, but yeah, even when we were a band, we'd run into this issue and, you know, as, as an organization, um, you ma, you know, musicians, and workers, um, run into this a lot. Cause anytime we pick a, a fight with, with some piece of the industry that has power and resources and we're like, we need to build power in this. So we can take those resources and, you know, create a more equitable uh, and just music scene, music industry. Uh, You get tons of people coming from that more nihilistic punk politics who are just like, yeah, fuck them. Um, Why even bother? They're all evil. Uh, You know, why would we do anything like this? Or, you know, there's a more sort of libertarian market minded version also that sneaks in that's like, oh, well, if you don't like it, just just don't do that. Just take your music off Spotify. Just don't play the music festival, whatever, whatever. But yeah, I, I think there's a very individualistic, nihilistic politics that you see in a lot of mainstream American society. I think it's really baked in that kind of individualism that is very closely tied to that nihilism. But you're absolutely right. 
it's really apparent in the punk scene where people think instead of organizing, instead of unionizing, we can just as, you know, individuals just opt out of society or something and it's all going to collapse on its own that way. Mm. And so what was it about, particularly about the pandemic or that moment in time that inspired you to get really hands-on with the, with Yuma as a project? Yeah, people, our band, lots of other bands have been talking about this as a project for a long time. Um, there isn't really an organization, right? There's, there's of course, the American Federation of Musicians, um, who primarily organize like orchestra musicians, musicians and more the like single employer employer relationship, but there weren't organizations organizing like indie punk, this kind of universe of musicians um, that me and most of my friends were. And so we talked about it for a long time. There had been some actions where we had played out this idea. For instance, in 2017, we took on South by Southwest and got a bunch of musicians together and got them to change a contract clause where they were threatening to work with ICE to deport foreign musicians if they violated contract clause, um, things like this. Uh, but yeah, it came to fruition 2020 for a few reasons. I think everyone was suddenly out of work. Um, at that point in my music career was just kind of barely scraping by making a very meager living playing music, which took, you know, a decade to get to that point uh, to be barely getting by. So it was already bad, but then it just fell off a cliff, right? The, the entire industry collapsed. And this was in this time where it was like, okay, what's the government's response going to be? It seems like they're going to extend unemployment benefits. Musicians aren't eligible for unemployment benefits. So our initial conversations were about we need to make sure freelance workers and musicians are included in these unemployment benefit packages. But like me, I think we saw a lot of musicians who were already just like on the precipice of having sustainable livelihood and it just completely uh, fell off from there to where it was entirely impossible. The industry just went away. Yeah, and so having, yeah, nothing like, lose, start, having nothing yeah, to lose, having nothing to lose is a great yeah. incentive to get started with activism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you had a lot of desperate musicians who literally couldn't make a living anymore, and you had a lot of time. No one was touring anymore. <laughs> you just had a lot of angry musicians who were uh, sitting at home, um, angry. And yeah, and that, that inspired a lot of people to, to get involved and get the organization off the ground. And, and what did the early stages of conceptualization of that? Because obviously it was during intense lockdowns. So everyone's, I'm imagining it was all digital organization, but were you having Zoom meetings? Were you like, how did you, how do you actually, what are the mechanics of getting this thing going? And you also had to become a nonprofit, right? So there's like a lot of yeah. bureaucratic stuff to go through. Yeah. It's been a, 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 you know, making the machine as it's moving kind of process. So it's been very exciting, also very chaotic, where the initial meetings were, you're right, just Zoom meetings, because we had people all over the country, all over the world, even, um, who I just emailed. They're like, hey, let's do this thing. And we started having Zoom meetings, like most things that happen. It's just a matter of making it happen, doing it, uh, not you know, waiting or asking permission or thinking it can't be done. And so we got into these Zoom meetings and started fleshing out the ideas. Different groups of people got interested in different sort of uh, subtopics within what we were doing. So some folks were focused on that, you know, making sure we got the unemployment benefits. Some people were focused on streaming justice. Some people wanted to talk about record deals, etc. So it began to sort of like splinter off um, and divide um, 
as the organization grew and grew from one central group to then a central group with many other groups on it. Uh, but yeah, it was very, you know, it was exciting, but also very chaotic. We have a lot of musicians who, as musicians, are trained to be very individualistic, uh, not organized. And so a lot of folks had not really organized before, had not been in this kind of political unit before. So it's been a really powerful learning process. I think some of the utility of the organization is that learning process to get musicians together who are usually so divided, like organizing, trying to figure something out, how to build power together. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been a, a challenge also. So it was interesting talking to Tom about what they were doing in the UK and how there was a real tipping point for him with getting McCartney to sign on to this letter about uh, transparency and streaming in residual rates and things. And that was a real thing that tipped it into sort of mainstream dialogue. You guys didn't go that route. It was a much more grassroots effort. I feel like the musicians who got attached were from the underground or from like act in the live scene. I wonder even like, would that kind of thing even be possible? That approach in America would be like, get Springsteen or Bon Jovi to sign. Like, you know what I mean? I'm just curious about strategically how you guys approached sort of beginning to get the word out. Yeah. The, I, for me, I think going that celebrity route definitely has its utility. And Tom did an amazing job with, with that effort in the UK and continues to do amazing work for me and for us. I think our vision of where power comes from is somewhat different. For me, these millionaires are not reliable sources of power, reliable representatives for the needs of working musicians. And so for us, where our power comes from is having the mass of people. So, you know, instead of getting one Bruce Springsteen or whatever, we went out with our streaming demands and got 30, 40,000 people signed on to it and sending, you know, tens of thousands of people sending letters to legislators to get them to sign on um, to stuff and building that kind of political and economic power that way. And in my mind, building that kind of organization uh, where we have a mass of working musicians uh, is going to just more seriously build power in the long term than sort of looking at celebrities. Of course, if we get celebrities endorsing our stuff, retweeting our stuff, whatever it is, that's fantastic. Um, but in, in my view, they can't be trusted to lead what they're doing. Sometimes their interests are aligned with ours, but sometimes they're not, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And can you talk me through those initial demands, uh, what that looked like to you, like what the vision of a more equitable streaming business would look like for musicians? Yeah, so we spent a long time thinking about how to begin our streaming campaign, how to target it, and so on. For us, a, a failure of earlier efforts, we thought, was the lack of accessibility in these campaigns, a lack of messaging and kind of a confusion around how this business works and how these payments work. And so our campaign... Which is, which I mean, it's so deliberately yeah. opaque. Too. Right, right. It's, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's not because it's not we yeah. don't care. It's just like we can't even find the information. Exactly. I mean, so many of us who work on this all the time still don't really understand it. <laughs> even if you have, even if you know all of the information that's out there, uh, you're right. Like so much of it, like what Spotify does is just absolutely secret. No one has any idea what, what, what is going on with their contracts and how they run things. And they like it that way. But we wanted to 
sort of distill it down to the basic idea that these people have all the money and power in this industry and we need to, 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 to get some of that. So we came up with justice at Spotify, Spotify being the biggest streaming provider, uh, the market leader in streaming consistently growing over the pandemic. Their particular villain is everyone was out of work. They tripled in market value over the pandemic. Um, we're just gobbling up more and more assets um, throughout this time. So we decided to target them to make it comprehensible, right? This is this one workplace, this one villain, and to say it, we're going to demand one cent per stream. And, you know, a bunch of people were like, oh, that's too little, probably equal amount or fewer, like, oh, that's too much, right? You had people on other sides, but you had a lot of people who were excited about this and who could kind of understand what we're talking about. With it's a the very campaign. clear a clear message. It's good. It's important to be keep it simple. right, yeah. right. And be you know, people are like, oh, well, what about this? What about this? And you know, when you're thinking about elsewhere in the labor movements, and you have workers saying, "Fight for 15," right? Demanding a fifteen dollar minimum wage from Amazon or Walmart or the fast food employers. Um, it's not the responsibility of the workers to sort of lay out the accounting for these giant companies to how they should pay their employees fairly, right? It is our job to simply say, hey, we're making this money for you. You have all the money you need to to pay us fairly. And it's on you to figure out how to make that happen. So that was our perspective going in. We did get more in the weeds with some of it, right? We were insisting on moving to a user-centric payment system, um, whereby, you know, artists are paid per stream rather than out of a giant pot, um, which is how it works now for most most. And this seems to be the most specific criticism of the issue with streaming, that 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 system of calculating royalties is not sustainable for the average musician, right? Yeah, it's not sustainable for the average musician. And this is a case, to go back to kind of talking about celebrities, where you have a case where if, you know, Taylor Swift is monopolizing more and more of the total streams in the music ecosystem. Small artists are ultimately getting less uh, per stream. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a demand that I think we've seen a lot of the recording industry be able to generally get around, um, which I think it's gotten so much traction in the media as it seems sort of possible um, and a lot of the, the more corporate players are actually coming out in favor of it now, including all the big record companies. Um, so, you know, but I mean, again, it's, it's something we're, we're in favor of and think it would benefit. All the studies have shown it would benefit smaller artists um, in the long term. And, you know, we're also asking for more transparency. So we're talking about it's very opaque. You don't know how these payouts work. If you go on to Spotify for artists, the back end for musicians to look on Spotify, they don't, there's no financial information whatsoever. Like if you go on YouTube, YouTube's payouts are actually even worse, right? YouTube's terrible in payouts. Uh, but they do give you a very detailed breakdown of how the money is moving around. Have YouTube um, creators tried to unionize at all? Is there any talk of that? You know, well, YouTube music workers um, just did um, and, and have won. Uh, I don't think they have a contract yet, but they won an election. Um, but most I, of the I, YouTube yeah. content isn't music based. It's video right, creators right. and vloggers, and so I just wondered if they have any within themselves any organization. I don't know. Not not in a serious way. I think there's been various efforts at like uniting from what I've heard about, um, but I have not seen any really big efforts uh, like music or even more than music. It seems like 
those kinds of creators are incentivized to be like really hyper individualistic. And it seems like it's very difficult to organize. So I haven't seen it, but I could be wrong though. Someone else might know. Interesting. So that got a huge amount of press. And I mean, that's how I first heard about you guys. And, you know, it's it's, in general, I feel like most musicians I know will like, hell yeah. And I'm going to keep sharing my Spotify pre-save links because we got (laughs) to keep the whole thing going. And, you know, but what, did you hear you must have heard whispers or something from within spotify what the reaction was to that campaign they gave us no direct response very shortly after we launched the campaign they started the loud and clear campaign where they didn't refer to us by name but were essentially responding to everything that we were critiquing about them and made a whole website and did like a big press run about it, about how wonderful they were and made this big website. So they've invested quite a lot of money in, in PR to make themselves look good and to try to counter these claims. Um, again, they haven't directly responded to us. I think they don't want to like legitimize that channel or something whenever you know journalists reach out to them for comment about our campaigns they just refuse to comment um so yeah we we haven't directly heard back from them but we we know they know about because they've directly responded via loud and clear i mean we've had legislative partners now tweeting at them contacting them so they're, they're certainly aware of this and worried enough that they're investing a lot to try to clean their image up and and how does it, you know, in the UK, Tom was talking about those legislative partners and those people within the system getting behind it was like a really big part of being able to gain momentum over there. Is there an equivalent of like, what's what's the path in terms of working with representatives in this area? Yeah. So the biggest thing that came out of that campaign, and we did a lot with it, we got all these initial digital signatures, then we had a day of action where we had people in 15 cities all over the world protest the Spotify offices all at the same time. Never something that's been done before to my knowledge is pretty extraordinary, but that momentum led us to having a relationship with a few uh, lawmakers in Congress here in the U S including representative Rashida Tlaib um, is of the Detroit, Michigan area. She did a bunch of stuff with us, including doing a public interview about the matter, but then sponsored a resolution um, which got a, a bunch of co-sponsors on it, calling on Congress to address this issue and also calling on Spotify to, to raise their rates. So we've had this legislative movement. Nothing's passed yet, but we are working with her offices on the next steps. So we've continued to build in this political route. And that's sort of been our model of having a mass of people all over the country who can exert this kind of political pressure to actually get something done on this. So it's still in the stages where we are working on those next legislative steps. Um, So something hasn't been introduced quite yet, uh, but we do have movement there and it it would likely look like something similar. Um, We probably wouldn't go the route like in the UK where there's the investigation. Um, But there are legislative solutions to change how these royalties are paid out. And that's what we're looking toward doing here. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Amazing. Before we move off the streaming thing, I'm just curious after this this wave of, you know, three years of gathering community around this issue and seeing how many people agree with you, but also seeing what the resistance is. Do you feel optimistic about that? It's okay to say no. <laughs> I'm just curious. Yeah. As in all organizing, I think you have to have that, you know, the, the willful optimism that it's possible to do. And we have moved forward so much on this to where we went from never having an organized group of musicians in any country coming at these streaming companies or coming at this issue to a couple of years later where you had effort in UK, you have effort in US, they're talking about this in Canada, right? Uh, sort of a worldwide thing addressing this. There's a big UN report a couple of years ago as well that came up with a lot of the same solutions that we were pointing at. So I think you see this extraordinary movement. The US political system is you know, fundamentally broken. It's hard to get things through. It's certainly not going to be an easy effort to pass something like this, uh, but it is moving. And I think you do see a kind of bipartisan anger at these companies. That's true. Right, yeah. Right-wingers, even if disagree with them on most things, also don't really like big tech companies, also don't really like these streaming services. So I think you do see a lot of anger across the board um, on these tech issues that does give me hope that this can be done. And again, it's never really been done this way before. We're kind of carving out this path and we've had a lot of success so far. I'm optimistic that we can keep pushing it through. Awesome. Just coming from the tech side then, what kind of conversations are you guys having about AI and its relationship to, you know, record contracts or future use of voice and image? And I mean, that seems like a, a natural space where musicians need protection. Yeah, 100%. Our conversations have been pretty closely related to the way that we've talked about streaming technologies, like streaming, like most of whatever technological innovations in music. It's pretty clear AI is going to be weaponized by these big record labels, by whatever dominant companies with AI music emerge out of this, whether it's Spotify and Apple and Google or new players enter uh, they're going to use it to further concentrate their power in the industry, just as they have been doing for the last uh, decades. And, you know, industry keeps making more and more money. Musicians at the bottom keep making less and less money, right? So they're very obviously going to use it in this capacity. 
And for me, it's an extension of what Spotify has been doing for a while now. They have these in-house artists who make tracks to put on the tops of their, you know, chill hangout playlists. Okay, wait, hang on a second, because I didn't know about this. Tell me about what do you mean they have in-house artists? So to avoid paying even the the small royalty rates they do have, uh, do pay out to artists. Spotify, it, again, it's one of these things that is opaque, but there are a number of artists, if you go to the tops of the, their, some of the most popular playlists, um, especially things like Ambient, um, they're sort of easier to, to, to replicate for them. Uh, you'll find a lot of artists who don't exist anywhere outside of those Spotify playlists. They've never performed. They don't have a website. They have no history. Um, and there's been various reports that Spotify's the very, very high likelihood is simply, um, you know, paying artists in house, or who knows if they're paying them, having some kind of in 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 house artists reproduce um, music that sounds like stuff that would be on an ambient playlist mm-hmm. or a chill playlist. So, and they often have similar names, right? Like if it were something to replace, like Beach House on ambient playlist, it would be like Ocean Hut or something, and then they get you know millions of plays on this playlist. Spotify doesn't have to pay out any royalties. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's how they, they work these, these playlist systems. So there's, there's tons of these fake artists or artificially created artists by these streaming companies, particularly in these top playlists. So that's already been done. And the AI is the sort of logical next step. They can just totally cut out even these in-house fake artists they've been paying to create this music, plug it into a computer, put that stuff at the top of the, the chill workout playlist, whatever it is, just make the money off of it, not have to pay the artists uh, whatsoever. This has been the dream of the record industry for, for a long time. Um, as other places have pointed out, other folks have pointed out, um, it's also notably a lot of the first artists you're hearing all these AI tracks with are, are black artists. It's been a dream of the music industry for a long time to also just recreate profitable black music without the black artists involved in it. And it seems like they're going one step closer to doing this. And in my view, I think a lot of the AI stuff is overhyped and that it's not quite having the same impact that, that some of the commenters are saying it, it has had or is going to have. I think it's actually more limited, but to the extent it's going to do anything, it's going to be to further entrench music industry power and as with streaming, the way to counter that is we have to build our own power. Mm. But so you don't feel personally, creatively threatened by AI. You see it more as like a business play, not something that's going to compete for the hearts and minds of America's youth in their passion for music. It very may well, in a more like existential level, I think it's not music. Like it, it, it's sort of a, a, a weird bastardization of what the point of art is like yes it can perhaps at some point can recreate some sounds it could probably create a fun dance track for the club but it is not something that is creating a community um you know bringing something spiritual out of the human experience that's necessary to actually make real music so i don't think it's going to replace communities it just simply is not the same thing of course, the record industry is trying, going to try to use it as much as possible to just replace artists, not have to pay them royalties. 
Um, Which is basically like yeah. boy bands or whatever. They're, these are all creations of the industry for which the artists don't aren't, aren't that involved in being. Yeah. And if you think about how boy bands or Drake or Taylor Swift, how the algorithms work now, right? The, the algorithms in Spotify have been promoting these artists for you know a decade now that we have of streaming, encouraging this style of music, and then other people make this style of music to continue to copy it. So you already have algorithms sort of dictating how music is made, what music gets made, who gets to make music, etc. This next step is not a sort of radical rupture with that as it's going to allow these companies to make even more money, mm. cut out one further part of it. I'd love to talk a little bit about the South by Southwest stuff. Um, yeah. Because that seems... I'm interested in it um, from two different angles. One of them is as a musician that, you know, I lived in New York and then lived in LA and I, in that way I'm an American artist. Um, so the challenges of what I see, what I went through too, of going to South by Southwest and playing the 12 shows a day, um, you know, and so all mm. crashing in, you know, all that. But, but interestingly, um, I, I shared something of uh, one of your infographics or something mm -hmm. from you more about that and i'm just going to look up i had a friend write a very an australian friend write something very interesting i know this is a complex and sprawling issue but if australian bands were paid for their south by southwest shows they would all need to go through the lengthy and even more expensive visa process as they would not be able to play on an esther the visa waiver. Um, just wanted to offer some insight into why it's not necessarily helpful for all bands to be paid a fee to play the event, especially those smaller ones using it to showcase for the first time in hopes to build their international teams, which I thought was an interesting and valid point when you think of, because I see a lot of what you guys are doing is these are not just American issues. These are about building community for musicians all over the world. So just curious how that you saw that playing into this uh, concept. Right. So we, we did on our demands website put a little asterisk and further explanation. So what we're talking about is, right, we're demanding an increase in a pay for uh, musicians playing South by Southwest and also asking that international artists who are currently offered nothing for their performances um, to also be compensated. Abiding by the rules about payment south by southwest could still compensate international artists for instance for travel for lodging for food there are ways the festival could be equally compensating international artists without them having to declare income officially yes exactly so most of these um visas specifically stipulate compensation for costs is something separate from payment so we're asking for equitable compensation in total um, with domestic artists for international artists. So there is a way, um, you know, to still have this be equitable for international and domestic artists uh, without threatening those visas. Um, there's a broader issue, of course, of how these visa systems work in the U.S., how they're set up to then create this tension where, you know, this, this can apply to immigration or work visas anywhere in the U.S. economy where the capitalists could say, well, you know, you all demanding that, um, you know, 
workers on work visas get paid more is bad for those workers because then we can't bring them anymore and you know then they'll, they won't come here do you hate immigrants or something and it's like yeah they, they've set up this system to divide us against each other like that but it's ultimately ridiculous right this how these visa works um can be changed um how these companies use these visas can be changed and these companies can figure out how to compensate workers better, um, even within the existing visa regime, for instance, by compensating travel, food, whatever it is. So it definitely sucks, but yeah, it's complicated. And is South by Southwest now, is that owned by a corporate entity or who, who runs South by Southwest? They are majority owned by a bigger company named Penske Media, who also own... Rolling Stone, Variety, Billboard, Art Forum. Oh, this is like a Condé Nast uh, type. Yeah. Company. Like, okay. Right. And they're um, a subsidiary of or related to Penske Corporation, who are a giant U.S. shipping corporation and also on like race car teams. So Guy Roger Penske who owns the company is a right-wing billionaire. He's made money a bunch of different places. His son, Jay Penske, is his little pet project is now building the media empire via Penske media. So South by Southwest is, uh, was one of their acquisitions a few years ago. So it's no longer mostly owned by local, local giant company in Austin. It's now an international conglomerate runs it. Interesting. And have you seen any movement in that conversation in terms of responsiveness? Yeah, they responded during the festival. We were having our protests down there to, they gave comment to Billboard magazine, which is a magazine they own, and said they were going to consider our demands and consider artist compensation after the festival and that they had heard us, etc. They still haven't given any notice months later that they're going to give a raise or that they've taken this seriously whatsoever. We know they know about this. <laughs> like They've responded to it. We know they're sweating it. Uh, some folks there have had conversations with their lobbyists. Um, and so on. So we know they're sweating and are very concerned. It would be shocking to me if they didn't make some adjustments, but we are continuing to push on it. There's actually a vote on Monday, June 26. Not sure when this is being you know released, recorded, but at the end of June um, this month, that would it's a vote in Austin City Government, specifically in the Parks and Recreation Department. Um, that would require South by Southwest to pay artists fairly if South by Southwest wants access to city property in Austin for the festival. So we've been able to build this both with the artists there, but then get political support in Austin and in the state of Texas and even Congress people in Texas to support yeah. this effort to know now where there's um, legislation moving in the Austin city government and we're having another big protest on Monday ahead of that vote in Austin outside City Hall to uh, keep that kind of pressure on. So this is going to be the first step of the vote. It's not sort of done on Monday. This is like a beginning resolution. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of local pressure, a lot of political pressure to force South by to pay artists fairly. And if and when this succeeds, it's a pretty interesting case of um in case of the wrong word a precedent it would create a precedent for how artists and cities can force these big companies to be treating artists fairly 
That's amazing. It, it also strikes me as so incredible that we live in this digital landscape where the shaping of the narrative of whatever's happening is, it's so much about shaping the content that people are consuming, but the physical presence of protesters, it's the same as it ever was. It exerts a very specific type of discomfort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's almost a, more shocking now because yes. people are so used to just like, oh, click a petition online, which is useful, but yeah, yeah. actually showing up is like, oh, wow. People actually got out of the house. And, <laughs> and what are any of the other big issues that you guys are tackling as a union? Yeah, so our big public campaigns right now are continuing to be the, the streaming issue, um, South by Southwest, um, which we think is a winning campaign. We are winning is going to set the stage for approaching similar music festivals and uh, big events to pay, venue, to pay musicians fairly. Um, we're also running or part of coalitions and other campaigns, including breaking up uh, Ticketmaster, Live Nation, which is the big monopoly here that runs all of the big venues um, and like sets ticket prices and abuses that power, their monopoly. So working with a coalition to try to break up the Ticketmaster monopoly. We're involved in some solidarity efforts, getting uh, musical instruments to incarcerated musicians um, do you guys do that with Wayne Kramer? Is Wayne Kramer's thing involved in that? Do you know his? Oh, I don't know that he, he has, does something he's doing. Yeah, he has something called um, jail jail guitar doors or something, and it's all about getting guitars to inmates. Um, oh, he's been doing it for a number of years. It's very cool. Oh yeah, I feel yeah, yeah, dumb. Yeah. I didn't know about that. <laughs> but yeah, we work with a uh, a group called Die Jim Crow Records, which is a, a record label of currently and formerly incarcerated musicians, mm. uh, the only one or the first one, and they've been running this program for a while, so uh, we've been helping them coordinate that. But, uh, yeah, I'll definitely look up that Wayne Kramer effort now. It's definitely something we and he's just about. such a cool yeah. guy that any any yeah. chance to interact with him is like, you'll come out better, you know? <laughs> so good. I mean, he's been doing this stuff in a, in a serious way for for decades, like thinking about how to organize musicians and use music as actual organizing and not just sort of individualistic level. But, and also staying kind of generally positive. Like that's what I admire about people that are on the front lines of these types of fights that don't let it sort of let themselves collapse into cynicism or bitterness, but staying optimistic about the future. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been rare to see a, a lot of maybe baby boomer rock stars stay stay consistent with the political message through today. So that's cool. That's cool. Totally. Um, so do you envision humor as something for every musician should be joining or could, can be joining? Is it just for American musicians? Is it what what does involvement in the union look like and who's it for? It's meant for everyone. Our our vision of how we build power is to have a very big umbrella organization. We've seen other efforts at this in the past fail or stop growing because they've tried to become smaller and more guild-like, whereas the more powerful entertainment unions in the U.S., like SAG-AFRA, have continued to be growing because instead of just organizing movie stars, for instance, they have extras too, right? They have a very big umbrella of who joins the organization, for us, that's our model, right? We need this to be a big thing to make musicians a political force that can make demands and see them out and get things passed um, at a political level and from from these big companies. So it's mostly 
you know, to be honest, musicians in the United States, we've done international efforts. Like, it's the, the biggest market too. It's like, if you can make yeah, it happen in America, <laughs> it's like you can change the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we, we've done these international efforts with, you know, Spotify where we, yeah, we had a action at the Spotify office in London um, and it went in Melbourne and one in Sao Paulo all on the same day, right? And a bunch of other places. So we've done these international efforts and specifically also with Canadian musicians, um, somewhat just because of the time zone for the Zoom meetings. Like, right. honestly, that's like such a big part of it. It's just like, it's, it's difficult to have our, you know, Zoom steering committee meeting with someone in Los Angeles and someone in London at the same time. It's totally. a big time difference. There's <laughs> just like practical considerations there. But uh, yeah, yeah, people, yeah can, so. people can sign up. Just they can go to the website and sign up and then they become part of invitations to these Zoom meetings and things. Yeah. So you yeah. can go to weareumon.org. You get our list. Uh, we have a Slack channel, like a, a chat channel uh, where we do a lot of the day-to-day, just organizing, sharing ideas, moving our campaigns forward. Right? We have a separate sort of chat channel, you know, like a Discord channel for each of the, the campaigns where we push things forward. Uh, so yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to be involved. You can just financially support and uh, be a member that way. You can share stuff. You can also come to the meetings every week and get involved in that like, you know, day-to-day organizing. Or if you have an idea and we're not working on it yet, it's very open. Come start organizing it and we'll, you know, help give you support to make it happen. That is so cool. Uh, one of the things that I'm asking people I'm chatting to, who do you think it would be interesting for me to talk to who has, you know, I'm definitely looking for optimism because because we can't give up, right? But people who have, uh, you know, important things to say about where we can move forward as musicians, as community individually, et cetera. There's a lot of people. One that comes to mind that I think would be cool for the show would be Boots Riley. Mm. who has been very supportive of our efforts was one of the few big name showcasing artists at South by Southwest this year who signed on to our efforts and publicly endorsed them. Boots was um, uh, premiering his new Amazon show at South by Southwest and still signed on to our demands, um, publicly boosted it, etc. Uh, he's someone who's been supporting unions and involved in the movement for a really long time. I think is a very, uh, I don't know, smart person in thinking about strategy, how you, how we actually do this stuff, how we actually organize and don't just like individual individualistically yell about stuff. So Amazing. he's a, yeah. he's a great one. I think that's a great idea. Well, I just wanted to thank you for doing everything you've done. Cause it's like, you know, it, it, it can feel very overwhelming being a musician now. And there is something about people that aren't given permission to do something, but just take the opportunity that it gives the rest of us all permission to think critically about the structures that we're in. So yeah, I'm very grateful for you and your team for doing this. Yeah. Thanks so much. Really appreciate that. And yeah, it's a lot of people making it happen and yeah, it's taking a, a DIY ethos, but you know, doing it all together and applying it to this political sphere and it, it builds community in the same way. I think that's another big reason why this happened over COVID is people were desperate for something that uh, not replacing, but to supplement the feeling of being at shows, being at the music scene and organizing with people like this, building that power creates a lot of the same feeling and a lot of the same community. So I think uh, it can mean a lot to people that way too. Awesome. 
Thank you so much. 